and chapter 1 today. And for those of you that maybe are visiting, we have, we decided, the church decided a while back that we wanted to study the book of Romans. And I told them when we started this study that the book of Romans was the foundational book of all the Bible. It's the one book that everything that you're going to find doctrinally is laid out and, uh, and really defined, everything is defined in the book of Romans. And I gave you a chapter by chapter a breakdown of what each chapter dealt with so you could better uh, on a you know, total book concept understand how we were going to break it down. I also told you that each chapter would break down uh, in, independently in itself and we now see that chapter 1 uh, has a lot of information uh, that really helps us. I think the main thing that Paul tells them in chapter 1 is something that we need to always remember is really the purpose why we are here. And that is to bear fruit among the Gentiles. We talked about when we started Romans how that we were coming from God dealing with the nation of Israel uh, in an Old Testament setup. Now he's moving into the New Testament with a Gentile uh, church concept and all of the different changes that uh, that was bringing about. I would dare to say if you study the book of Acts <coughs> and you remember the book of Romans is written during the book of Acts, I would say that there's probably... Uh, 15 to 20, maybe 25 years uh, in the book of Acts that, that, that there's some confusion going on among God's people of what God is doing. And God is very clearly, as he always does, taking his time to make sure that everybody gets the right message, that everybody's on the same page. And, you know, even today with the Bible and all that we have, there's still a lot of confusion that goes on in Christianity. And that's why it's so important to teach the Bible clearly, cleanly, and that you manifest all these great truths that they really uh, help you understand what, what God is doing. And we know now that, <coughs> that the book of Romans is the foundation of, of what we believe, our doctrine. And we saw, and you ought to have chapter 1 now kind of divided up in about four or five different ways. And I know everybody does a little differently. But not only do, I, do we want to just look at the whole book, and I told you what we didn't want to do with Romans, because there's so much in Romans. What we don't want to do is get into each chapter and start taking that apart and looking at all that material. And then in the process, I mean, we probably had nine or ten lessons on chapter one itself. What we don't want to do, and this happens all the time, is when you get into a book and you start going through the material in the chapters, it's easy to lose sight of what your overall goal is. And I told you before we started Romans that I would, we wouldn't do that, that we would... We would, uh, we would take each chapter independently, we would break it down, and we'd tie it into the overall uh, frame of reference to the book of Romans itself. But in chapter 1 now, you ought, to have, you ought to have four or five things listed out in your chapter, maybe more, but uh, as I thought back on it this week, I talked, thought about four or five main things that we talked about. The first thing we talked about was really the first week, and that was in uh, verse 1 where we talked about Paul being a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. We talked about your, you being a servant, your calling, and how that you and I are not separated necessarily from something, though we are, but we're also separated unto something, the gospel. Then we talked about, and this was probably one of the greatest aspects of chapter 1, we talked about how that the wording of Christ was, was uh, made of the seed of David, how he was not born of the seed of David, but the importance of understanding why he had to be made of the seed of David. And uh, we went back to Jeremiah chapter 22 and talked about the great prophecy that, 
that uh, absolutely preserved that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and not uh, the literal Son of Mary and Joseph by, by birth. Then we talked about the Gentiles and how God deals with them by their conscience. Another great concept. And I know that as we went through this over the weeks, and our Thursday night Bible study has really reflected, you know, what you've been getting out of this because a lot of the questions have been asked as we've come through it and, uh, uh, and, and been relevant to that. And now we talked about what a great concept, and many of you came to me and said, boy, does that make a lot of sense now, about how God deals with the Gentiles on their conscience. We talked about how that God lights every man. There's no man or woman that walks on planet Earth that are not, it is not lighted by the light of God at some point. They either accept that light or they reject that light. But the Bible says he was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So we talked about that aspect. We got into the body, soul, and spirit a couple of Thursday nights ago. I, I don't know how, and I, probably, you know, 50 of you had, had come to me or called me in the next uh, week or next couple of days saying that was the clearest rendition of the understanding of the body, soul, and spirit that you've ever had. And, and you know, it was just one of those nights where God came down and got a hold of it, and, and it, was a, it was a great time. But we, we got into all of that. And then we talked about how that God, why God wanted the nation of Israel to stay separate from all the other nations. And we began to see the Gentiles' influence. Because Romans chapter 1 really lays out for us so we can see it, that we can better deal with Gentiles, but it shows us the mindset, how Gentiles think, how Gentiles look at things, why that all the false religions on the face of this planet started with Gentiles, and how all of the things that Israel got involved in came from the Gentiles. We saw in chapter 19 and 20 how God reveals himself to the Gentiles and uh, through the things that he made. Again, one of the greatest studies you'll ever take in the Bible. And then we saw how Gentiles always, when God reveals himself to them, they replace God with something in their life, and they go on in life just like the sky is blue and everything is fine, even though they have totally rejected God. I told you how that not only is this true of dealing with unsaved Gentiles, but it's also true when you start to deal with Christians. And you're going to find that many times Christians pick up same of the same bad habits that the Gentiles do, even though that they're saved, uh, you know, and on their way to heaven. Remember last week we, we talked about verses 25 through 27. And I told you it was going to be a two-part message, and this is going to finish it up today. But we talked about and took a graphic look at the depravity of the Gentile mindset when they leave the Word of God. We, we put it under the context of light rejected becomes lightning. I took you back to 2 Kings chapter 23 and showed you all of the absolute ungodly things that are going on that Israel has allowed the Gentiles to sneak in and, and destroy their relationship with God. And now today, we're going to talk about part two. And I want to I talk today about a, a and I want to focus on a, 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 on a tremendous concept and yet a terrible concept found in the Bible. And I told you that we couldn't get it all in last week, but I want to talk to you today about one of the greatest concepts to find in the Word of God. And it's certainly something you need to know uh, if you're going to work with people. And I want to talk to you today about the concept in the Bible of a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind. What exactly does that mean and how does that fit into what we're talking about? Let's begin to read in Romans chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 25 and we'll come on down through these passages. Here's what it says talking about the Gentiles now. 
who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worship and serve the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women <coughs> did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemingly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, and whispers, uh, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in, in them that do them. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you, Father, now to uh, take this time that we've set aside. Help us, Lord, to, uh, uh, to take all the things of the Word of God and to apply them into our hearts and our lives and to learn today. Help us, Lord, finish this great chapter out today before we move on to chapter 2. Let us have a breakdown. Let us understand what is going on. Let us be able to look back and break down that chapter in our Bibles that we understand and we know exactly uh, how this thing all works so we can begin to chapter by chapter better understand the greatest book in the Bible on Christian doctrine. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for those that are here. May you bless us now with your spirit. And we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now I'm going to talk with you today. I'm going to show you in Romans chapter 1 uh, about a reprobate mind. There's five steps. Five steps that a man or a woman goes through or a nation uh, or a church. It doesn't, it isn't, this, isn't, this isn't just two individuals, though it is individuals. It's to anything. Five steps to a reprobate mind, and we're going to talk about it. You know, I've asked a lot of questions about the Bible. And I think that one of the questions that I'm asked many, many times, and you hear a lot about this today, and, and people get confused on it. You know, we, we obviously have the issue where people believe you can lose your salvation. or they, A lot of people struggle with eternal security. And a lot of people have issues with the fact that they believe that once they get saved that they can lose their salvation. Well, we've covered that many, many times, and if you know your Bible, you know that's not true. But an, a question I'm asked many, many times goes along with that is this. I'm asked many, many times, are there some people, are there some people that God won't save? Are there some people who are so wicked that God won't save them? And, of course, uh, when, you, when you think about that, uh, you know, it, 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 and you look around the world, I know it's inconceivable because we look at it so many times from such a narrow broadband or a short band, but it's inconceivable But when you see somebody that is totally, completely wicked, and you wonder to yourself, how could God save that person? Well, the reality is, in God's sight, you know, they ain't any more wicked than you and I are, see? But because we like to put it over here and not put it here, that's what we do. And the thing you've got to realize that... Uh, uh, the answer to that question is no. There are not people who God won't save. But at the same time, I need to say this. There's nobody that God won't save, 
but there are some people who cannot get saved. Now, I want you to think about that for the next 20 or 30 years. God will save anybody. But I'm going to stand here and tell you this morning on the authority of the word of God, God can save anybody, but there are some people out there who cannot get saved. And we're going to talk about that question this morning as we bounce back and forth here, and you understand the concept of a reprobate mind, and we'll answer that question in its entirety before we're finished this morning. You know, in the course of ministry, and, and uh, some of you guys are going to get into the ministry, and your wives, you know, in, in, in the course, some of you are already in it, you know, some of you have been in it, and uh, I'm sure that those of you that have worked uh, uh, with, with, with people with me and some of you that have worked in churches uh, would see this. Ray, you'd see this in a heartbeat. We've talked, we've talked about it before. And uh, you're going to find that, that, that when you start to deal with people and people's problems, I guarantee you that every problem a man or a woman has has a starting point. And that starting point is in their mind. Sin starts in your mind. And you're going to find that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, the Bible talks about the mind of the Spirit. The Bible talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that you and I on a daily basis are to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the mind and the flesh. That's why, and you hear me say it all the time, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that Jesus says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, that we have the mind of Christ. And, of course, we know that to be the Bible. You know, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, uh, there's a great passage. Now, I know that you're taught, and I know this is taught, and, and, and sometimes it has to do with tertiality. We think that sin starts in the heart. But when you understand the concept between the mind and the heart, then you understand how this thing lays itself out. And I know that the Bible says back there when it talked about Lucifer, the Bible says he was perfect in his ways before iniquity was found in thee. And the Bible says that he said in his heart. But you know what? He had to think about what he was going to do before he put it into action. Sin, from a technical standpoint, doesn't start in your heart. It starts in your mind. And your mind is what, we've talked about this on Thursday night, and so many of you are, are up to speed on this. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, you want to know where the battle is today for you as a Christian? I know the Bible talks about Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the whole armor of God and talks about all those things. But in reality, do you know where your battle and my battle is today? It may be a battle of the flesh, but the battle of flesh starts with a battle for your mind. And that's exactly what we've got to deal with when we kind of look at this. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians, or just listen to it, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. I'll pick it up in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh. What does that mean? It means that even though you're saved, you still, you still are in this flesh. And uh, you, you walk in the flesh, but your battle is not with other fleshly things. Your battle is spiritual. And then he says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now those strongholds right there, ladies and gentlemen, will be the strongholds of your mind. Let me show you what he's saying. Casting down imagination, that's your mind, and every high thing, that's your mind, that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, 
and the bringing into captivity every thought. See where it starts? It starts in your mind. And it's that old concept that we talk about uh, many, many times, uh, how, you, how you learn uh, to deal with people. We'll get to it here in a little bit. Your mind, we now know from the Bible, is your spirit. And when you put that mind or your human spirit, whatever influence you put it under is what in time uh, you're, going to, uh, you're going to lend yourself to to become part of. I found that, you know, when you start to deal with people, some people have a, have a spirit, their own personal spirit. That spirit is vexed. You know what vexed means? It talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vexed means that it's, that it's afflicted. It's troubled. Some of God's people, when you work with them, or unsaved people, their spirit is vexed. It's vexed because of the fact that they, uh, and you call this, this is called the vexation of spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 1 through and 3. And they vex their spirit because they have filled their life with all the vanity things that's found in Ecclesiastes. And they think that, that all of these things are going to satisfy them. And after, the, after 5 or 10 or 15, 20 years, the reality begins to set in. We have in our, in our society something that started probably 30, 40, maybe even longer than that years ago. And it was a, it was a way to identify a certain problem that people got into when they hurt, hit a certain age in their life. And that identity problem was what we call midlife crisis. And a midlife crisis takes place, and you hear it used mostly for men, but it's also, and it becomes a good catch-all for it. It's like when you go to the doctor, and he doesn't know what's really wrong with you, so he says you got a virus. See, that, that, he can charge you $275 for that, because if he told you he didn't know what was wrong with you, how's he going to charge you? So they have these catch-all phrases, kind of like a big rain barrel. And it catches all the things in it, and so they put them in here. So when you, when you have a problem that they don't know how to really deal with, how really to dig it out and to, and to deal with it, they, they'll put it into some generic category. So you got a midlife crisis. Now let me tell you what a midlife crisis is based on man's spirit and vexation of spirit. A midlife crisis will come into your life very easily. And I, you'll deal with people like this all the time. They have vexed their spirit. And so they get to be 30, 40, 50 years old in life. Maybe they've been saved for all of that time. Maybe 20 years. Maybe 10 years. And we know that the Holy Spirit of God, if they are saved, is living inside them. And you know the Holy Spirit of God was given to you for a purpose. It wasn't given so you could do your own thing. It was given so you could do what God wanted you to do. But when you and I don't let the Spirit have free course in our life, you know what we do? We grieve Him, the Bible says. And the grieving of the Holy Spirit of God can cause some serious issues in your life. You know what midlife crisis is for a Christian? I would have liked to have seen Paul into a midlife crisis. Paul didn't have a midlife crisis because there isn't a day in his life when God wasn't. The only crisis he had was somebody trying to kill him for Christ's sake, and that would have made his day. He didn't go through the emotional turmoil that many of us go through. He didn't have what we call a midlife crisis in his life. You know why? Because those crises come in because the Holy Spirit of God is living inside you. He's been grieved now for 10, 15, 20 years. 
So much stuff that God that God, you have not done for God. It's all been about you. It's all been in your life and the way you want to do it. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit of God now becomes greed. And the Holy Spirit of God, that grieving in the Holy Spirit of God will vex your spirit. It takes, it takes your, your spirit and it manifests itself in depression or anxiety or heaviness of heart. It just feels like you get to that point in your life where nothing is working. You can't get ahead. You feel like, what's the purpose of life? And the reason why you get to that is because by that time, you have missed the real purpose of life. And the Holy Spirit of God is grieved inside you. You've exposed him to all the stuff that you listen to, that you look at, that you read. And he's grieved inside you. And that's the manifestation. It vets your spirit. Then you find some people who, Bible says, that, that it isn't a life of vanity that, that causes them problems, but rather that the fact that they're, they, they're on an emotional roller coaster. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, it's one of my favorite verses in dealing with people. It says simply, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And in this category, you find people who their emotions run them instead of them being in charge of their emotions. And life for them is an up and down thing every day. Life for them is they're up today, they're down tomorrow. I mean, uh, the, the life for them is based on does the sun come out in the morning. If you get up in the morning and the birds are chirping and the sun's out, you're happy. But if you get up in the morning and it's cloudy and it's raining and it's thundering, then you're depressed. What a terrible way to live our lives based on the circumstances of life. You know what the word happiness means? The word happiness is, comes from the word happenings. And when a person is happy, they fall into this category. They're happy because the happenings in their life were good. When the happenings in their life are not good, then they're unhappy. Now, I understand the concept of happiness, but for a Christian, it goes beyond happiness. It goes to joy. Joy based on your relationship with God, that the principles of God and what you're doing for God override your emotions. I tell you all the time, and it's something that I will drive into your brain as long as I can and as hard as I can, that the job of every Christian, every Christian, I'll say this two times a Sunday if I have to, the job of every Christian as you grow is to replace the way you look at things and the way you think about things and replace it with the principles of the Word of God. The Word of God and its principles should dictate how you feel emotionally about everything in life. You only have so much of your emotions to give. I mean, uh, when you get to the end, it's you're drained. I know how I feel at the end of a long day with maybe uh, 20, 30, 40 people uh, that, 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 uh, or, or, or a week, you know. But sometimes on a day, you'll get, you'll get uh, 10 people to come in, plus your own time. And I know at the end of those sessions how drained I am, that I, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to give any more advice. I just got to go veg someplace and, because you're, you only have so much to give. And what we do as God's people, because we don't have our emotions in check, we spend a lot of emotional money on things that aren't worth the money. We will. We'll let our emotions be spent for everything out there and then wonder why we don't have anything to give God at the end of the day. And that's a person that has no rule over their own spirit. You should be in control of your spirit. Your spirit should never be in control of you. You know, the Bible teaches that there's four spirits. Four spirits. Man can have three of them. 
The first spirit we talked about last Thursday night was the spirit of an animal back in the book of Ecclesiastes. But the three spirits that man has or can have, we know that he has his human spirit when he gets born, but then he has a choice between God's spirit or an unclean spirit. And three of those four spirits you can have, or I should say they can have you. <laughs> it depends on what you're going to do with it. You know, uh, there's a, there, in Job chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, there are six questions asked. You know, I've preached this many, many times. Most of you have heard it. I preach it as the six questions God's going to ask at the judgment seat of Christ. But one of those questions is very pertinent to where we're at today. Because you know what that question is? They question that asking this. He says, and whose spirit came from you? Someday God's going to look at you and he's going to look at me. And he's going to look at the way we dealt with people. He's going to look at the way we dealt with circumstances. And he's going to look at the way that we, uh, that we dealt with different things in our lives. He's going to look at the way that we responded to people or reacted to people. He's going to look at how we thought when we were in a situation that, that we just didn't have the courage to do what's right. And the Bible's going to say, God says that God's going to someday is going to ask you and me, Hey, Bob, on such and such a time at such and such a place, whose spirit came from you? My spirit or your own spirit or an evil spirit? And when you understand how important the spirit that you and I have is and that it is our mind in the Bible, the mind of the spirit, and God is going to ask someday, whose spirit came from you? Now, the spirit of man is connected to his conscience. And we've studied all this before. The spirit of man is his mind. That mind is connected to his conscience. And that's where God first deals with a man. Again, Thursday night, we went a little bit farther in our study. I showed you in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, where the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord is the candle. Uh, a spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. When God begins to light a man, when God begins to come down and deal with that man, he lights a candle, just a little candle. And that candle is in your, in your spirit that is, deals with your conscience. And when God reaches down and just lights that little candle by giving you the revelation of him, no matter how he does it, you then have a decision to make. Just as clearly as Adam and Eve in the Bible in the garden. When God came down and said, okay, it's been fun, hasn't it? We've had a great time. Now let me give you some rules. You can have everything, everything but this tree. If you don't mess with this tree, I'm going to give you this tree. The moment he gave them those two options, they had a choice. And the moment God lights you, the moment God comes down and lights your candle of your spirit, you now have a choice. And that choice is going to be based on your conscience and your spirit. At this point, a man will join himself or bonds himself to a particular spirit. It'll either be God's spirit, it'll be his own human spirit, or in many cases, it'll be an unclean spirit. And this is where the old axiom automatically comes into play that we talk about in counseling all the time, attitude and action. You see how it works? Attitude is your mind. I told you, this is where sin starts. Attitude is your mind. You get a thought in your mind, and it develops into an attitude about people, 
about places, about things, about circumstances, about whatever. When you develop that attitude, it's the spirit, it's your mind and your spirit that develops the right attitude or the wrong attitude. I look at somebody and he walks into the back of our church and he's about six foot tall and he's got big old leather chaps on with a big old biker jacket, got big chains hanging down here, look like for an anchor of a ship, tattoos all over his arm, big old scraggly beard, big guy. Walks in with chains and, and, a, and a German helmet on. He walks in here with big old leather Harley boots on. I mean, he looks like the Terminator when he comes in. Now, immediately, when we all turn around and see who just kicked the door in, we're all going to form an oppression, aren't we? Some of you are going to say, I hope you don't sit next to me. No, you will. Some of you will say, boy, I bet he smells. He looks greasy. Wonder what weight oil his hair is. You'll say, boy, he looks like a rough dude. Boy, he looks like somebody out there that, uh, that is just looking for trouble. I bet he hates God, hates churches, and he saw old past and thought he'd come in here and kill everybody in here. And then he turns around and you see on the back, ride for God, motorcycle club, love you, Jesus. And you walk out and say hi to him, and out of this big six-foot Terminator. Now, he was taller than me, six-foot-five. <laughs> out of this six-foot, seven-foot monster, you hear the sweetest, tenderest, loving, kindness, spirit come from him, that you just know he loves God. But you see, in that case, all the bad things you thought was your human spirit based on your fears that you built in your attitude. If you really were operating under the principles of the Word of God, you wouldn't have seen the motorcycle jacket. You wouldn't have seen the chains or the tattoos. You'd have seen him as God seen him, and you would have walked over there, and you would have talked to him, and yet the only idea what he had in your mind God brought somebody in today that we can share the Lord with. And when you found, you didn't need to see all the proof that you knew that he was with God because it really didn't matter. Whether he was of God or not, you were. Your spirit develops that. It develops an attitude. Your attitude always produces the action. In that little case right there, you developed an attitude. Therefore, your action was, hi, how are Welcome to Old Paz Baptist Church. We wish you to stop someplace else, but we're glad you're here today. <laughs> Attitude will always be your mind. The action will always be in relevance to your heart. Attitude and action. And that's what the Bible says. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You see, your spirit we talked about this the other night. It's like the rudder on a ship. And that little, that spirit, whatever spirit you lend yourself to, if you lend it to God's spirit, then you're going to be God. If you lend it to uh, an unclean spirit, you're going to be. Now, I need to understand, whatever you lend your spirit to, now, you got to get this, whatever you give your spirit to is what you, it's not what you are, it's what you become. 
Now you need to know that. This is way past psychology 101. Where you put your spirit and your kindred spirit that you're kindred with is not something that you do, ladies and gentlemen. It's what you become. The Bible says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And when you do that, you become Christ-like. You don't just walk around like most of God's people that you know the four spiritual laws and the Ten Commandments and, you, and, you, and you, you're, 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 you're kind of you know, uh, like Christ. You become Christ. Christ-like. He's living inside you. I say it all the time. Every day of your life, you ought to be more like Christ today than you were yesterday. And when you lend that spirit to your own self, to who you are, then you become, you become yourself and your life revolves around you. And that's why when you give yourself to an unclean spirit and you line up your spirit with that, you become those things. That's why the Bible says that you and I on a daily basis have to wash and renew our mind through the Word of God. Now last week we saw Romans chapter 1 go into an automatic process when a man rejects the Word of God and we come down to landing in the unnatural sins. Homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, necromancing, all of those things. And I showed you the great examples in the Bible, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, of what was going on. A downward spiral that within the Gentile nations that lead to verse 28 where the Bible says, And God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Your reprobate mind will come from where you put your spirit. Your spirit will dictate where your heart is, and your heart will dictate what you say and what you do and what you become. Now, this is why we talked about America. You know, last week I showed you how that over 120 years now America has been out of the Word of God. America has totally fallen into this, and America has a reprobate mind. It's absolutely unbelievable what goes on in this country. You know, I w there was a time, and I heard this on the news yesterday, and I know it's true because I grew up in the 50s. There, was a, there is hardly a week that goes by that you don't find some place in this country, and multiple throughout the week, where some little child is abducted, brutally murdered, sexually assaulted. It's un unprecedented where we're at today. When I was growing up in the 50s, uh, my mom and dad uh, put me on a bus one time and sent me, you know, 100 miles by myself when I was 10 years old. Back then you could do it because people looked out for kids. Boy, don't try it today. You better not leave them on a street corner and turn your back for 15 seconds. You better not leave them in your front room with your doors unlocked. The reality is our world has gotten completely to a reprobate mind. Every time, it's almost to epidemic proportions. And when you come down through Romans, there's about 22 or 23 things that we want to look at here very quickly of what happens when a man or a woman takes their spirit, vexes their spirit, gives it over to an unclean spirit, and then begins that process downward, that spiral downward that leads to a reprobate mind. Now, in verse 25 through 33, here's what it says. 22 or 23 things, I may have missed one, I did this early this morning. 22 or 23 things that happen to a man or a woman when they get to that point uh, of, of, of uh, the bottom rung of the ladder. Chapter 1, verse 25 says, first of all, they have to corrupt the Word of God. We talked about that last week. 
What do you mean by that? Oh, it means that you have unnatural desires for a man or an unnatural desire for a woman. So to justify it, you go back and talk about David and Jonathan being homosexual lovers. Jesus being married. Jesus loving John in a, in a homosexual lifestyle. That's what you do. Once you corrupt the Word of God, verse 25 says the next thing is that he worships and serves the creature more than the Creator. That will be number two. Number three in verse 26, God gives over to vile affection. Now the Bible says, on the other hand, Colossians chapter 3 verse 2, that you and I are to set our affections on things above. See, one is one spirit one way, the other one is the other spirit the other way. Chapter 1 verse 28 goes on and says, God turns him over to a reprobate mind. When that takes place, and you're, and you're coming down through here, it all changes. At that point, the Bible shows you very clearly that this is what they now become. This is what they now become. This becomes their lifestyle. This is where we see the things that, uh, uh, the attitude and the action. The, everything now begins to change, and they don't do these things anymore. They become these things. Look what it says, or listen to what it says. Bible says in verse 29 and verse 31, they fill themselves, here it comes, they fill themselves, this will be number five, fornication. Six, wickedness. Seven, covetousness. Eight, malignity. Now that's a good word, malignity. We don't think of that word in dealing with people much, but it's a great word because when we go to the doctor and he says you've got a malignancy, that's not a good thing because that means that something is cancerous. Cancer is, is a terrible disease today, but the word for it is malignant, malignancy. Now what you have is cancer is something that eats away at you slowly, under the surface. It's something that destroys your good cells and in time claims your life. Most people that die of cancer, you know why they die of it? Because they had not one symptom of it till they went to the doctor for something else and then found out that it was in stage four, it was too late. Many times it has no symptom. Many times you play ball, you run around, you do what you want to do. Many times you can go through the whole process of life and you never know that deep down inside you something is eating away at you, a malignancy that is buried deep within you, that is destroying what is good in you, and in time going to claim you and going to take your life. This kind of lifestyle is a malignancy. Good choice of words. Envy, murder, debate, deceit, maliciousness, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, just like Genesis chapter 6, and we know what their problem was back there. Disobedient to parents, covenant breakers, without natural affection, and then the last one, without understanding. And then he cops it all off in verse 32 by saying this, who, these people, knowing the judgment of God. See, they know. There's no ignorance here. Bible says we've already studied it. They are without excuse. God touched them with a light. He, he lit their spirit like the candle, and somebody either flamed that candle into a bonfire or they snuffed it out who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, physical death in the Old Testament, spiritual death, separation from God in hell in the New Testament. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And the key word here is the word pleasure. Now, 
I know we all sin. And I understand that. And we're talking about last week natural sins versus unnatural sins. There's not a week that goes by, probably, that one or two of you don't come in and sit down with me and talk about the Bible that have just newly either gotten saved or you're getting in the back into the Bible or you're getting your life straightened out. Hardly a week goes by that one of you don't, don't come across my threshold and we sit up there in my office and talk about things. And almost I hear the same thing a couple of times every week. You're still, you're not where you want to, you want to be with God. You still have some issues in your life. You know, you've been saved a short time, and you're trying to do the best you can, and, and you, 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 you just can't break some things in your life. And those things are, are just kicking your rear end. And you come into me, and you're frustrated. You come into me, and you, you think you're a failure. You come into me, and you think that, well, I'll never get out of this. You come into me and you say to me, many times they say this, Bob, I don't know, I, I just, I feel like I, I just disappoint God so many times. And I just struggle with this or I struggle with that or I'm trying to get over this. And you know what, there's so many areas in my life that, that I'm doing better in, but there's a couple of areas that I just really, really, really have a tough time dealing with and I just don't, I just feel like I'm a failure. And I hate it. I hate myself. I hate what I do. I hate what I think. I hate this. I hate that. I just can't stand it. Now, you see, to you, that looks like you got a problem. To me, it looks like you're right on track. Because the key here is there was a time in your life when you had pleasure in those things. See? There was a time in your life when those things were pleasurable to you. They're not pleasurable anymore. Because you recognize in your life that God has something for you. You want to do it. You don't know all the Bible that you want to know. You're trying to do the best you can. And many times you become your own worst enemy and defeat yourself because you don't see it from my standpoint. You're not going to get over everything in a week. You're not going to get over everything in two weeks. Now, if you're not over in three weeks, then we got a problem. Man, it may take you six months. It may take you a year. It's immaterial how long it takes. It's immaterial how long it takes. Sometimes God leaves things in your lives, and I know this is hard for some people to understand. Sometimes God leaves things in your life because you wouldn't get over them if he just took them away, and I'll guarantee you something else. He leaves them in there because down the road you're going to have to help somebody else that's got the same problem you got, and if God just came down and took it out of your life, you'd never be able to help them. There's always a bigger picture to it. Always a bigger picture. I remember one time years ago in the Johnny Carson show. And Johnny Carson's now been dead for, well, in fact, I think it was before him. I think it might have been the Jack Parr show years and years ago. And they brought on the most incredible dog in the world. In fact, it was, the, it was, it was a talking dog. And, and I couldn't believe it. I remember my mom and I were, were looking at it and, and watching it, and she was astounded. I was astounded. And this dog was incredible. You know, sometimes you get dogs to say things like you do birds, but this dog could communicate. And, and the guy would ask him a question. And Now, it wasn't goofy stuff. It wasn't like, what's on the top of the house? And he goes, roof. I mean, you know, what's on the tree? Bark. It wasn't that kind of stuff. It was, it, it was, it was philosophical stuff. And I remember after he was on there, the dog became world famous. And he made a lot of money for his master, unlike my three who don't make any money. <laughs> and 
And, and, and they did a great article on him, and a guy went over and interviewed him, and a talking dog, and he sat down with the guy, and the guy, the guy was talking with him, and he, this beautiful big house this guy had built because of the dog made him all this money. And he went out there, and he, he took him out there, and he showed him the back swimming pool and all the things, and over in the corner was a doghouse, beautiful doghouse. And this dog was kind of sunning himself, you know, in a little lawn chair with little glasses on, you know, a little drink in his hand or paw, you know, and they're down there. And the guy is just amazed at what this dog has done and what he can do. And all of a sudden, the dog put down his drink and got over there and started, and he started scratching, scratching like he's going nuts. And the reporter looks at that and he thinks to himself, now why is a dog who is obviously worth $50 million, why would this guy allow that dog, why would that, you, that dog's got fleas. So he says, I got to ask. And he says, sir, I got to ask you this question. I'm doing this interview. My viewers want to know. This is the smartest dog in the world. He's made you millions of dollars. He's the most famous dog in the world. And you live in this financial palace, and he's got everything he wants. But I had to notice that the million-dollar talking dog with everything that's got going for him still got fleas. Now, why is that? The guy looked at him. He said, oh, that's because I never want him to forget he's the dog. No, I made that story up totally. Now, don't let that damage your spirit this morning, but my point is this. Sometimes God lets us have some fleas on us. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes God doesn't want you and I to forget who's the dog. The key is you hate it. The key is you don't want to do it. The key is before you took pleasure in it, and now there's no pleasure in it. And that's the key. That's the key. And there's people out there because they have aligned their spirit, they rejected the word of God, the light of God, and the light rejected is now returned as lightning, and they have, they have joined their spirit to an unclean spirit or to their flesh, and they wonder why they have the problems they have. Now, how does a person get to that point? How does a person get to that point where he gets, as the Bible says, a reprobate mind? I don't think today that we have a knowledge and even understand what that word really means. It's depth. It's total depravity as far as the word of God is concerned and what it really carries in weight in the scriptures. You know, I, I, and you know I'm not much on this. You know, hear many preachers get up and they, they talk about they'll take a word in their sermon and they'll go to Webster's Dictionary and they'll find the word and then they'll try to preach that to their congregation. I don't ever do that because I know that the, the Bible defines words differently than Collier does or even the new editions of the... But you and I know if we've been around in the Bible for a long time, we do know of one dictionary which is 98% the best, safest dictionary you can get your hands on. And it's, it was a dictionary that was put out by Noah Webster. Now Noah Webster wrote, if not all, of the early textbooks for the public school system. He's a contemporary of Washington and lived back in the 1700s. Noah Webster was a saved man. And when Noah Webster wrote the textbooks for the school system, he based them on the Word of God. He also put out in 1728 an edition of Webster's original dictionary, the first one, first edition, in 1728. And the definitions in that dictionary were based on a King James 1611 authorized version. The world hadn't been polluted yet. Now, he did it a hundred years after the English language was in its purest peak form. So this is an invaluable resource in 90 to 98% of times when you want to, and, and many of the times, if not all of the time, 
I can't say it 100% sure. When he gives the definition, you'll find the scripture reference there that takes you to the passage in the Bible that shows you how it's used. But he's interesting on the word reprobate. And uh, you find the word reprobate three times in your Bible in the New Testament. One here in the book of Romans 1. Then you find it again over here in uh, Titus chapter 1. Then you find it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Then you find it three more times, but it's used in a plural sense. We're not going to worry about that. But let me read you what Titus, and, and the Bible, in other words, Webster's definition is based on God's definition. Let me read you what Titus says about, about a reprobate. He says in verse 10, Titus chapter 1, verse 10, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake, filthy lucre is money, uh, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the uh, Sertians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Under, uh, under the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled. Now here it comes. Watch it very carefully. But unto them that are defiled. See, under the pure, all things are pure. There's someone that has lined his spirit up with the word of God. But to uh, them that are defiled and unbelieving. Do you notice there's two categories there? There's the defiled and the unbelieving. The unbelieving is unsaved people. The defiled is saved people. Don't you think for a minute you can't defile your spirit? As I say, I don't know of anything that the devil can't do with you that he can't do with an unsaved person except get your soul. We hear a lot about, well, can a Christian become demon-possessed? You know, well, you know what? It's all in terminology. But I'll tell you this. As a Satan, you say, can a, I, don't, I don't believe a Christian can be demon-possessed. Well, let me tell you what a demon, a devil can get. He can get your mind. He can get your eyes. He can get what you hear. He can get what you read. He can get what you think. He can get what you eat. He can get what you drink. He can get your emotions. He can get, he, he, if that isn't demon-possession, I don't know what is. Bottom line is, the devil can get everything of a saved person except his soul. That's the only thing he can't get. And he says down here, uh, verse 15, Under the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and, and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience, there it is, see that thing? Mind and conscience, but even their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work, reprobate. You see what that reprobate goes back to? It goes back to their mind and their conscience. And both a saved and an unsaved format. All right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Well, I'll say that again. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. I said it again. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetousness, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, uh, heady, uh, heady high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than a lover of God. You know where you find those things? We just read those things over in Romans chapter 1. Or a variation of them. We're talking about the same group. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. 
For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins away, uh, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these under resist the truth men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. See that thing? It goes back to your mind and your conscience. Your mind is your spirit. The word reprobate then by, based on this, when you go back to Webster, so you got a clear understanding of it, the word reprobate or reprobate mind means a mind that is abandoned to error and apostasy. A mind that is abandoned to sin, a mind that is lost as to virtue and lost as to grace. Wow. That's a pretty rough definition. It's the point that we talked about last week where God leaves you alone and the process begins to spiral downward, and you have your own way. In Romans chapter 1, it's a great chapter that shows us the way that Gentiles approach God. But when you were coming through that and listing these things out, had, did you, anybody, and don't raise your hand, I'm just asking, did anybody pick up the five steps to a reprobate mind? And you want to put this in your Bible. You want to mark these out. I have them down in mind because it's a great sermon. And this downward spiral, this downward progression of these five steps brings you to a reprobate mind leading to unnatural sins in your life. And it's the place where you don't hate that sin, but you now have pleasure in your sin. We'll talk about how this process goes here as we look through it. All right, step number one. Step number one, you're going to find that in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the Bible says that God reveals himself. Chapter, uh, chapter 19 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Now this is the first step. The first step in a man getting a reprobate mind has to start with him getting an alternative. God lights him. God's spirit lights the candle of his spirit, Proverbs 20, verse 27. And we now, God takes that light, and when that light comes on inside that man's conscience, you know what it shows him? It shows him, it lights up, it's like turning the lights off in here and me writing something on this wall, and it's so dark you can't see it. That's the way you were before God touched you. The moment God touched you, he didn't give you all the light. He just gave you the light of a little candle. But it was the light enough to show you what was written on the wall, and the written on the wall is the law of God in your heart. That's how it works. That's how it works. Step one is God reveals himself to every man. And we know through the law written on the heart, through man's conscience, when God touches his spirit, man now in his mind is conscious that God has touched him. There is no man or no woman. And this answers a lot of questions when you start to talk to people and say, well, I was born this way, or this is the way it is. You can rationalize, we'll get to this in a moment. You can rationalize it any way you want. The bottom line is this. God's job is one job, primarily. And that is that he lights every man and every woman who comes into this world at some point with the light of God. His job is a candle lighter. He goes around and at the right time, at the right place in men and women's lives, I don't know when it is, don't have a clue when it is. I just know that he does it because he said he does. He goes around and he lights your candle 
and that candle reveals the law of God written on the table of your heart, and at that point, you are without excuse. So the first step is God revealed. The second step is found in chapter 1, verse 21, and that's God's light becomes rejected. Verse 21 says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Now this is what man does, and this is, this is what we're going to see in this particular passage. Now if you're ever going to work with people down the line someplace, or maybe you already are, this is invaluable stuff to understanding how God works in somebody's life. Because many times in dealing with people, we always, we always react to what we see on the outside. People will put up a front on the outside. But they can't ever mask what's really on the inside. And the key to finding out where people is at is not, is not, is not listening to what they tell you. It's really watching what they do. Because the, act, the attitude will always produce the action. They can fake the attitude, but nobody, I have never met in 40 years of ministry, 35, 36 years of ministry, I have never met anybody who was good enough to fake the action 100% of the time. Because the action is what you really are. And when you understand all of this, and you see that, 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 that when God's light becomes rejected, Man has some responsibilities at that point. God touches his conscience. He lights that conscience by the Spirit. And then a man has a choice. He can either accept it, or in this case, he rejects it. And there's three ways, there's three steps in his rejection that I think are very important. But before we get to that, let's talk about the conscience for a minute. The greatest definitive verse on the conscience anywhere in the Bible, and you need to know this, is over in John chapter 8, verse 9. Now, the story in John chapter 8, verse 9, is a story of the woman taken in adultery. And they bring her before Jesus. Obviously, it's a setup. Obviously, this is a thing that has been conspired to see if they can trap him. And in ministry, many times, people will conspire things against you to see if they can trap you. You always do what the Bible says in any given situation. You can't lose. Because this is what they did to him. One, if Jesus would have went along with them and killed her, they'd have come back and they would have clobbered him for doing that. If he would have taken her side and let her go free, they'd have clobbered him on that. Now, if you're going to get into ministry, and some of you are someday, no doubt in my mind about it, you need to understand that this is basically ministry 101. People will set you up. People will set you up for failure. If you allow them to, they will put you in a no-win situation. Wherever you go, they're going to try to clobber you. Wherever you go. That's just the nature of dealing with people. And Jesus is smarter than they are. And in ministry, you need to be smarter than they are. You always do what the Bible says. And, of course, the moment you see somebody circumventing what the Bible says, you know that something that they're selling is really smelling, how the old expression goes. This is what Jesus did. 
they bring this woman and they say to him, we caught this woman in adultery. In the very act. What are you going to do about it? Now, he's faced with a potential issue just like some of you will be. And what he does is he stoops down on the ground and he writes. And what he writes down there is not anywhere laid out in the Bible that you know for sure. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, he's probably writing down there in the sand the Old Testament references in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that says that you can't bring the woman in adultery without bringing the man. In other words, you're never wrong sticking with the Bible. Don't get your emotions caught up in what people try to tell you. Stick with the Bible. Because as good as we think we are, all of us can get our emotions in something when it's just good sense to stick with the Bible. That's what Jesus did. He was, he was trapped either way. If, they, if he would have said killer, then they would have brought up, well, the Old Testament says, see, if he took her side, then he would have come at him from the other angle. You know what he did? You know what he did? He took the word of God, and look what it says in this verse. Great verse. Verse 9. He stoops down and he writes on the ground. And as I said, we don't know what he wrote, but I guarantee you it had to do with the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 22, or I think it's Leviticus 20, but down there that you've got to bring both of them together. You can't bring one without the other. Verse 9 says, and when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And I'll tell you something else there. It's always the older that lead the younger one into the sin. See that thing? The eldest to the youngest. You know when you've got kids in your family, it'll be the older one that'll lead the pack to how the rest of them go. That's why as parents, you've got to be parents and not children like your children and most parents are children most parents are not in control of their kids their kids are most parents aren't in control of their home their kids are they'll say I don't think you got to do this kid says up yours I'm doing it okay why don't you just give him all the keys to the house and the car he's in charge or she's in charge you go over to him and say I don't think that's a good idea oh dad I don't care what you think oh mom I don't care what you think this is what I'm going to do who's in charge I mean they're living, and some of you drive me nuts. They're living in your house. You're paying their food. You're paying their light bill. You're keeping their rear ends warm and cool in the summertime. And you know what the bottom line is? They, you let them tell you what they're going to do. You know why you do that? Because you're not in charge. You're just children. And the real tragedy is based on this. You're younger than they are because they're in charge. I don't have time to get into that this morning. Now, look at it says, being convicted by their conscience. That's one of the clearest verses in the Bible to show what your conscience does. It convicts you of sin when the light of God hits it. It tells you when you're wrong. It'll tell you when you're guilty. And you ain't going to ever tell me if you're saved. You ain't ever going to tell me. Well, unless you get to the point we're going to get to here in a minute. But most of you would not fit into this category if any of you would. You're not going to tell me that, that when you do something wrong, you don't know it's wrong. You may not want to admit it to me. You might not want to alibi out. But the bottom line is, that's what your conscience does. Here's a place where they, they tried to set him up. They lied. They got the whole thing constructed among themselves. 
And when they brought it to Jesus, it was a trick. It was a trap. It was to destroy his ministry that they could go out to the people and say what he was doing and all the things that was happening, that he didn't follow the law, he didn't do this. And you know what he did? He just simply did what the book said, and the Spirit of God in their own conscience convicted them of sin. That's what your conscience does. Now, you need to know that your conscience as a saved person, as an unsaved person, or saved person, is what God deals with you to convict you of your sin. And you're going to find that when you get to that point in your life, when you are faced with that, you got, you got three choices. you got three choices. You can rationalize your sin, and you'll say, well, I'm a victim. See? You'll rationalize it. You'll justify it, and you'll say, well, so-and-so did it. Well, look at so-and-so over here. Look what they did. Or the Bible says in, in, uh, in 2 Timothy over there, uh, 1 Timothy verse 4, it says, or the next thing you'll do is you'll sear that conscience. You'll either rationalize it, you'll justify it. In fact, that's a progression. You start out rationalizing it. My sin's okay because God understands. Then you justify it. Well, what are you looking at me for? Everybody else does things that are wrong. Then the third stage is you sear your conscience. With a hot iron. Then it doesn't bother you anymore. You laugh at sin. You enjoy sin. It's your pleasure now. That's where it goes. Of course, there's the fourth alternative, which I highly suggest, and that is just confessing it. Unconfessed sin will lead to physical problems. It'll lead to emotional problems. It'll lead to psycho uh, physiological or psychological problems. It'll lead to all kinds of problems. You know why? Because it's dealing with your conscience. Now, I have people all the time. I had a lady come in one time and she said, I'm depressed. I've been diagnosed as bipolar. And I said, well, when did you live in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere? Uh, you know, and she said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a manic depressive. And she said, I, I've been diagnosed that way. And I said, well, what's your deal? And she said, well, she says, she said, I'm just depressed all the time. And I said, well, tell me about your life. Boy. I, I mean, she'd she been into everything that anybody could got into in a short time span. When she was done to me, she looked at me and I said, my God, lady, why shouldn't you be depressed? I'm depressed just hearing what you've been through in your lifetime. You can't do that to your body. You can't expose your, your spirit and your conscience and your flesh and just walk away and not have it affect your conscience. You know what we got today? we got young men and young ladies that are growing up with no conscience. You know why there's no conscience? Because we're in a generation that has rejected the Word of God. You know what today is? Life is cheap. You go to, last week, guy went to a car wash to wash his car right here outside of Raytown. Some kid came up, took his car. It wasn't enough that he just took his car. He killed him. He shot him for a car. But the guy would have probably said, take the car. No, no. He came up, took his car, and then just as a point of reference, killed the man. You got gangs in this city. And if you want to get into this gang, you got to pick somebody out and you got to go over and kill them. They don't have anything, never did anything to you, never said anything to you. You just go up and it's part of the initiation that you got to be in this gang, you got to kill somebody. Life is so cheap today. We have no value. You know why? Because we have seared our conscience as a city, as a nation. As a country, 
We've seared our conscience that life is no longer precious to us. We get pregnant and born a baby. We don't even think twice about it. Nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing is precious. There's no value system of life anymore. Now we come to the point where we have, we have justified, rationalized, and in many cases seared our conscience. And you can't get out from under your conscience. Your conscience is the point where God is going to deal with your sin till you die. Now there was a time when churches preached you didn't have the problem we got today because when evangelists went into town, they, when he was done for two weeks, closed the bars, closed the whorehouses, closed the drugs, closed everything, and the whole city got born again. You come in now, have five days of revival, it doesn't change nothing. Even the parking lot attendants don't get saved. You know why? Because this country and the people in it have seared their conscience. And your reason why you have the problems you have, saved or unsaved, is because you have failed for whatever reason, rationalization, justification, or just searing it, to deal with the issue in you that has to be dealt with to get out from under the burden that you're under. It's your conscience. You go in today and you've got psychological problems, they put you on drugs. They'll put you on Prozac. They'll put you on this. They'll put you on that. Thinking that those things will solve your issues. No, 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 no. They don't solve your issues. The most terrible thing that they do is they just deaden your conscience. They put you in a zombie state. They make you night of the living dead. They make you part of the zombies that came from New York and attacked Topeka. They make you, they make you the, the dead walk among the living. They make you the creature of the Black Lagoon. That was another movie. That wasn't part of it. They take you. They do a lobotomy on you without ever touching you. Those medicines just slow down your mind so you can't think, so you can't react, and you don't have to think about the ungodliness that you've lived in. I got a better, better advice for you. Just put it under the blood. Walk away clean. Get forgiven. Get that conscience wiped. Not, not whitewashed, but washed white. Once you reject God's light to feel better, then you have to do something, so you proceed to step three. Once you reject your conscience, once you reject the light, then you go to proceed to step three, and that is you replace God. Professing themselves to be wise, verse 22 and 23, they became fools and changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and into birds and into four-footed beasts and into creeping things. Will the real God in your life and my life please stand up? Boy, every time I read that and look at the world and Christianity and God's people, I think over there in Acts chapter 17, verse 23, when Paul saw the inscription, to the great unknown God. Boy, we love everything but him. I see it all the time. First one it goes is God when your life gets busy. First thing you got to do when you get ahead of God and do your own thing is you cut God out. God's got to go. Well, I got to get a second job. I got to do this. I got to do that. So God's got to go. 
I don't have time to study my Bible anymore. I don't have time to do this anymore. I don't have time to. I got things I got to do. And God goes out the window. You don't mean to. I don't think you plan it. But that's what happens when you get outside of God and in your mind you think you and God are just fine when in reality you're not. We love to replace God. I love all the things that are out there in this world. I do. But we all replace God sooner or later with something if you, don't, if you just don't keep your eyes on it. And I'll tell you what, we're all guilty of this. I, I, I'm telling you, you really want a spiritual test? Don't ask me. Take those seven character qualities that I gave you about God a number of uh, uh, months ago. And I told you that there were the seven character qualities in ministry. If you really want to know, and I've had like eight or nine, ten people over the last couple of months. Well, uh, you know, and I said, you want a real test of where you're at? Don't ask me, because I can't see inside you. You look okay for me, but what do I know? I'm just seeing the outside. I don't want no go down down in the dredges of your mind and your heart and your soul. I mean, you could be the nicest, sweetest, smilingest, little prettiest little thing you ever saw in your life, and inside you may be dripping venom. You may be the cleanest cut, nice lookingest guy I ever saw in my life. But on the inside, you may be down in the deep, dark dredges. I don't know, but I'll tell you, if you're really honest, you take those seven things, list them out, get honest with yourself, deal with each one of them, look at each one of them, lay it out, and be honest with yourself. You won't need me to tell you where you're at. Step three is then you replace God. Then step four, it says, God reviled. Verse 28 says, and, and ever, as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Get God out of everything. Get God out of everything. Get him as far away that I don't have to think about him. I don't want God, I don't want to think. You know how that starts in a Christian's life? Right now, some of you don't like rebuke. You come to Sunday morning and I'll say something that kicks your pet elephant. You don't like it. You take a personal offense to it. You reject the light that God gave you through me like there's something personal between me and you. You reject the light. See? Once you reject that light and you get an attitude about it and you reject rebuke, you know what down the line, in that line, in time, if you keep on going that way, you're going to not only hate rebuke, but in time, you're going to hate truth in general. You know where that's going to lead you? Do you hate God? And yet you'll walk around the church and you'll be so nice and you'll talk to people. Oh, and they'll look at you and they'll think, oh, she's the sweetest little gal or he's the nicest young man. Boy, I'll tell you what, in all of those things and deep down inside you're so far away from God because you're on that downward, downward spiral. In our institute, I was coming through and I was laying some things out and uh, God showed me something that a number of years ago, and I've never even told anybody this, but it's just something I had in my Bible that I thought about it, and I brought it up that night. It, it, it needs to be talked about today. You know, one of the greatest, wisest men in the Bible was Solomon. Uh, when you read down there in Solomon's life, you know what? Solomon comes, comes to a point where he does really well, and then all of a sudden he hits a point where he just goes to hell in a handbag, as the expression goes. And when you read those passages, the first thing you find out he does is he, he makes an affinity with the king of Egypt. And that was a violation of the law. Solomon likes a lot of women. So he, 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 gets, he collects women 
all around the world. Probably the most beautiful one. We had six, had a thousand wives, four hundred wives, six hundred concubines. How do you remember all the birthdays? Of course, when you're Solomon, you don't have to worry about those things. And yet, he, he has that he has that incredible harem. He's got all the wisdom in the world. And then finally, you start to see his demise. And every preacher I ever heard will go back to Solomon, either to the women that was his downfall, who brought him to the other gods, or they'll go back one step further, and they'll take it back to his allegiance with the king of Pharaoh. And that was the beginning of his downfall. But they're both wrong. Let me tell you where his downfall started. It started long before he saw the first, golly, she's really pretty. Started a long time before he called Pharaoh on the phone and said, send me over some of them horses. No, you know where you find it? I'll tell you where you find it. It's very subtly put into that Bible, but boy, it's there. When he builds God's house, the Bible goes into the great magnificence of God's house, and when he builds God's house, the Bible says it takes Solomon seven years to build it. Then it talks about in the next chapter, he builds his own house. He took seven years to build God's house. He took 13 to build his you know what his first problem was? He spent more time on his own house than he did on God's. You know where your problem will start? Right in here. You start spending more time building your own house than you do God's house. You get more concerned about your life, where you're going, what you're doing, and all the things you've got going, and you build your house more than you do. That's where it starts. It's an attitude that goes into, a, goes into an action. God reviled. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they get rid of God in everything. The presence of God, the, the knowledge of God, the recognition of God, God is out of everything. You see it in this country. In our schools and colleges, you ain't allowed to take a Bible. You can take a Playboy. You can take a pornographic magazine. You can't take the Word of God. No Ten Commandments in our public places. Lawsuits over it. Before you have a football game or a basketball game, they used to kneel down and all the team would pray. Can't pray anymore. No mention of God anywhere. Even as goofy as it is, when I was a kid growing up, we had Christmas pageants. You know what they did? They had the story of Jesus coming down in there. Can't even, don't have those anymore in school. I remember growing up in school where they had a preacher came in, and he did a fair job of telling everybody how God came down. Can't do that anymore. At Easter time, we had, we had the pastor come in and, from a church. In fact, uh, they would come in and they would talk about, they would preach a message. Maybe it wasn't always good, but it was, it was with God and about his death. And even if that stuff isn't really the way it is, it was the message was getting out. Try it today. Why, you can't even say, you go to school today, they don't have Christmas break. They have winter break. They don't have Easter break. It's spring break. Get God out of everything. You go to the department stores around Christmas, many of them will say, they'll say, they won't say Merry Christmas. Some won't even say Happy Holidays, because holidays is holy days. God had everything. Well, there's an there's a issue right before the Congress right now to take off your money. God in trust. Which we should anyhow. In our basketball game, they used to kneel down and all the team would pray. Can't pray anymore. No mention of God anywhere. Even as goofy as it is, when I was a kid growing up, we had Christmas pageants. You know what they did? They had the story of Jesus coming down in there. Can't even, don't have those anymore in school. I remember growing up in school where they had a preacher came in. And he did a fair job of telling everybody how God came down. Can't do that anymore. At Easter time, 
We had, we had the pastor come in and, from a church. In fact, uh, they would come in and they would talk about, they would preach a message. Maybe it wasn't always good, but it was, it was with God and about his death. And even if that stuff isn't really the way it is, it was the message was getting out. Try it today. Why, you can't even say, you go to school today, they don't have Christmas break. They have winter break. They don't have Easter break. It's spring break. Get God out of everything. You go to the department stores around Christmas, many of them will say, they'll say, they won't say Merry Christmas. Some won't even say Happy Holidays because holidays is holy days. God out of everything. Well, there's an there's a issue right before the Congress right now to take off your money. God in trust. Which we should anyhow. They say that we got to rewrite the Declaration of Indi the Constitution because there's too many, there's, there's a reference to God in it. No reference to God in any public place. The Christians even got, got onto the bandwagon. They produced new Bibles that take God out of the Bible. A nation that completely voids itself of the knowledge of God, the, the preeminence of God, the light of God, everything that has to do with God. You will right now in our country, the facade before our justice system is every time the Senate and the Congress open up their session, they open up in prayer. There are preachers in this city, I've known two of them, or three of them over the years, who just wait for an invitation to be called before Congress to stand up before the Congress and to offer a prayer before Congress that God shed his light on what we're doing. you got to be politically connected. But I'll tell you how it works. You get the invitation, they'll go to Washington, you'll sit in there, and before you ever get there, you have to submit your prayer to make sure the chaplain of the Congress or the Senate thinks it's a proper prayer. And in that prayer to God, you cannot use the name Jesus Christ. You cannot pray in his name. You cannot say in Jesus' name. It has to be out. God is okay because God is everybody's father. But boy, you bring Jesus Christ into it, you've just narrowed the playing field. That's our country. I'm not fighting it. I'm telling you. You want to know the five steps? It's God revealed, God rejected, God replaced, God reviled. And then at that point, verse 28, God says, He gives them a reprobate mind. Now, the question originally is, are there some people God won't save? And the answer to that is emphatically no. God is not willing that any should perish. But the real question is, are there some people who cannot get saved? And the answer to that is emphatically, yes, there are. There are people who cannot get saved. Can they not get, now listen to me very carefully because you're going to get your nose bent out of joint about this and you're going to hear something I didn't say and you're going to be too lazy to buy the tape, too cheap, whatever it comes, and you're, you're going to go out of here misquoting me, which happens all the time, so it don't really matter. But I'm just saying, I'm just trying to save you a lot of pain. Don't want God to kill you on the way home today or anything like that. But, but listen to me now. There are some people who cannot get saved. 
God is not willing that any should perish, but your salvation is based on what you do when your conscience gets touched by that light. Can God not save you? God can save anybody anytime. The problem is some people won't let God save them. You know, when you start talking to charismatics, <coughs> bless their hearts, and I'm not fighting anybody, because <coughs> I don't really <coughs> but point of reference, <coughs> they talk about the unpardonable sin. <coughs> now, the unpardonable sin, supposedly, is some sin you commit that, that, that God can't forgive you for. And, of course, uh, some people make it adultery. Some people make it murder. Um, personally, I make it not tithing, but that's okay. Don't be stealing that, Ray. I know what you're going to do now. I saw, I saw your eyes. I saw you. Yeah, make sure he doesn't write that down. <laughs> you know, and that's found over there in Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, it, and it never uses the word unpardonable sin. But let me tell you where this concept comes from. It has to do with Israel not getting forgiven. And the reason why Israel, it says in that passage in Matthew chapter 12, that Israel cannot be forgiven it's because Israel has already went through these st five steps. Israel's at a point with a reprobate mind. Israel's at a point where she's demon-controlled and demon-possessed. Israel's at a point, like we saw in Titus and saw over there in, in, uh, in Timothy, uh, she's at a point where she is absolutely, totally, and completely uh, got a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. She's at a place where she's deceived herself. She's at a place where she has been, she thought that she was going to play with God, and God turns around and plays with her. And he says over there in Matthew chapter 12, as long as the nation of Israel takes the position that the spirit by which God has come and do these things is the spirit of a devil, they can't ever be saved. Bottom line is this. It isn't the fact that God won't save you. It isn't the fact God can't save you. It's the fact that because if you buried your conscience, seared your conscience, deadened your conscience, that's where God's got to deal with you with your sin. And because you seared it, rationalized it, justified it, now it isn't sin anymore to you. It's not sin anymore. And depending on how far down the depravity ladder you've gone, the harder it is to get back out. Sin never lets a man any better than it finds him. And you got to understand, you can play with me, you can lie to me, you can play with your friends, your husband, your wife, you can lie to them, and you can be, uh, you can be, you can be absolutely ashamed to everybody around. But the bottom line is, and you can, you can deceive people, but you know what? You never deceive God. And you know what winds up when you try to deceive everybody in time? You know, you ever been around a person who's a chronic liar? After a while, they don't even know when they're telling the truth. You ever find somebody who's a chronic complainer? There's never a time they don't complain. You ever find somebody that's a, that's a, a chronic gossiper? They got to shoot their mouth about, about something that's, that's wrong in somebody else every time you turn around. You ever find somebody who's a chronic, wants to point the blame at everybody else? That's all they do, and they, they become those things. And let's not forget, Ezekiel chapter 14 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 11 says that God will give you a lie to believe. You wind up deceiving, to think you can deceive God, you wind up deceiving yourself. And God allows you to believe what you want to believe. You want to believe, you want to believe that homosexuality is okay? You want to believe it's in the Bible? God will give you that. You want to believe that, uh, you know, this medicine, all these drugs will fix your problems? God will give you that. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Once you reject the light, you're on your way down. The elevator doesn't go up, it only goes down. But it's got a lot of sub-levels. And down you go. And the longer you play those games, the longer you just pretend with God, the longer, the more you get to the place where you won't let God in. You barricade yourself. I said this, I used this in counseling many times, and I'm closing with this. I told people when I used to teach people how to counsel, 
and I, I would take people and show them how to try to get to the point where you could really work on, on, on deep levels with people. I liken, one time I, I worked at a factory, and my job was to, uh, this big warehouse, and it, the shelves went up, oh, I don't know, almost to the ceiling, probably 30, 40 feet. And on those shelves up there were just absolutely every part that they needed in this factory. My job was, and they called down on the phone, to run down wherever I had to go to get the parts, put them on the conveyor, and send them down to the line. That's all I did all day. Great job, once you knew where everything was. And I thought to myself many times when I looked at those long, long corridors, and you know, you'd get bored at times, and you'd start to think goofy things, and I think to myself, you know what I'd like to do? You know what would really be fun? It would, go get them, Joe. Remember, have them sit down. I looked down those quarters and there was boxes and parts and I thought to myself, you know what would be fun? It would be absolutely the greatest thing in the world because I hate this job and I'm so bored. It would be so much fun to start at this end and just go down and rip things off, man. Throw things over my back. Throw this down. Throw that down. Throw this over. Break this. Throw that. Oh, look at these parts. Scatter. I mean, million little parts. Oh, the, oh ball bearings. Wow, look at them roll. And just throw everything down. Tear it all down. Knock it out. Ah, I hate these parts. Where are you when I need you? Down you go. And you walk, and then you throw the big containers down and the boxes down. And you're down there. And finally, you're down there, and you said, oh, man, that was a great, great, great time. And then you turn around, and you're going to walk out, and you realize you can't get out. All the carnage that you made having fun have now blocked your exit. You got two choices, ladies and gentlemen. And in biblical counseling, this is what it is. Choice number one is, piece by piece, you pick up what you threw down. Or two, you don't do anything. You just stand there and say, and the boss comes in and says, Hey, what'd you do? Like this when I got here. did it. I saw Harry sneaking around over here. Check Harry. That's life, folks. It comes down to being that simple. Romans chapter 1 is a great chapter. It shows you the progression that the Gentile nations fall into. It shows you and helps you understand why God wanted Israel not to have anything to do with them. And it shows you that Gentiles can get a reprobate mind, and it goes through the five processes. God revealed, God rejected, God replaced, God reviled, and then the reprobate mind comes in. It's where our country is, where many churches are. It's where a lot of God's people are. And I'm telling you, you want to build a relationship with God, stick with the book. Keep the principles and stick with the book. Now, we're going to be dismissed here in just a second. I want to meet with these guys right over here next door here just for a few minutes. I need uh, John Busquette, I need Danny, I need Phil, I need Jimmy, and I need Scott Deedy, and I need Chris Fender. Give me a minute to make some appointments and then head over there, and I need to sit down and talk with you for a few seconds, and uh, we'll go from there. Let's have a word of prayer. Don't forget Thursday night. I appreciate uh, you being here today. I hope you got a blessing out of it. Let's ask God's blessing.